Education Lanes with your host, me, Targan. I'm so happy to have you join me for another fantabulous episode. Now, let me tell you, I got some fire for you today because I have been talking about doing this IEP episode and the time for release is finally here. When you have to navigate the IEP world and you don't know where, what, how, how, you know, who's in your corner, what to do, who to bring, what paperwork, where to look for stuff. I mean, all these things that are going through your head, I went and found not only an IEP specialist, but I found a lawyer in the field to help you navigate this world. Yes. So I'm so excited for you to listen in. This information is absolutely relevant. You're going to get some good stuff. I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen through to the whole thing because to the end, I'm telling you, there are nuggets all along the way. So get your notepad, get your pen, write down notes, and get ready to enjoy this episode all about IEPs on Real Talk Education Lanes. Enjoy. with the founder of Child First Advocates, Mr. Ed Spinks. Welcome so much to the show. Oh, thank you. It's good to be here. I'm glad you uh, took the time to uh, sit with me today to really answer some questions that uh, my audience is really dying to know. <laughs> How to handle and maneuver this topic of IEPs. I mean, um, it's amazing how many people just don't know what fully they're supposed to be getting out of it, um, how they're supposed to approach it, you know, coming to the table about it, who's supposed to be there, who's supposed to help you. If nobody does help you, where do you go? These are just questions we want to get answered today. And I'm, I'm so happy you, the professional in this field, are going to be able to, to help us navigate it. So I see here that um, you know, some of your accolades, I want my audience to know that um, you are part of the Council of Parents, Attorneys, and Advocates, which is called COPA. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. I actually attended a conference they had. Uh, the last conference I attended was in uh, New Orleans for COPA. And, and COPA is a nationwide organization that brings uh, advocates, attorneys, and parents uh, together to, uh, at least at the yearly conference, update uh, parents, attorneys, and advocates on the law and what the trends are and what they're seeing throughout the nation, because it's uh, important to uh, realize that uh, IEPs and uh, are brought about by uh, federal mm -hmm. regulations. So the federal regulations come from Congress and they're applied equally to every state. Now, different states have some different uh, implementations of that, but they basically all have to follow the federal law. So it's a great organization to keep uh, attorneys, advocates, and parents abreast of changes in the law and uh, provide updates on what's coming down so the pike. So anybody could go to the, to the conference and it's open to the public, or is it kind of more of a closed? The, the conference is, uh, at least it's open to uh, COPA memberships, but mm -hmm. COPA membership is uh, open to the public in, in, at large. In general, if they have an association of uh, attorney advocates or parents of uh, children with special needs. Mm -hmm. um, so you can look at the uh, COPA.org website for more information on how to join COPA if that's of interest. Okay, wonderful. Well, I know you are invested in this topic of IEPs. Um, you know a thing or two or three uh, about this area. Um, I'd love for you to tell tell us kind of your background and how you kind of got started with starting Child First Advocates. Sure. Um, I have a eight-year-old son and a three-year-old daughter. And I should say my eight-year-old son was born with uh, Down syndrome. So right after he was born, we got uh, more involved uh, with the special needs uh, programs and particularly as it relates to uh, Down syndrome. And just so uh, every family goes through that journey, they, um, you know, start to learn early on that 
IEPs are important and uh, what, what uh, educational benefits and options are available to the uh, children. So that, that kind of drew me to that community. I was already an attorney. I've been licensed in Florida since uh, 2000. Um, of course, being an attorney and working in the uh, Down syndrome community, meeting a lot of other people, I, I realized a lot of other parents with uh, older children have questions about their IEP and what their rights are and uh, what's the difference between IEP plan and 504. And, and these uh, legal questions that really develop from these uh, educational laws. So I decided that I need to get a little smarter on it. Um, I took some classes. Uh, eventually, I went to a uh, certification class given at uh, William and Mary uh, Law School and uh, then went on to uh, attend some uh, other classes through uh, COPA, uh, Rights Law, and uh, some various educational uh, organizations. Uh, currently, I'm also a member of the Florida Bar uh, Education Law Committee, which is a, a committee on the made up of members of the Florida Bar, uh, people like myself who advocate on behalf of children, wow. and other attorneys who advocate on behalf of uh, uh, school systems. Mm-hmm. What would you say, somebody who's just getting new to the process, what would you say is an IEP? Can you kind of summarize for someone who just, they, they hear those letters, but what, like kind of broken down, how could we look at, what is an IEP? Sure, if we think about it, it we think about it as an uh, individual education uh, program for a student that has a uh, disability. And those um, certain disabilities are listed in uh, something called the IDEA, and that stands for Educationals. I'm sorry, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And so that's the act uh, passed by Congress to provide the educational rights to children that have uh, special needs. Okay, as a parent who may be facing the question, does my child need an IEP? Um, they hear the letters, they now know what it is. Where do they start? Where do they go? What's kind of their first step kind of getting into the process of now being an advocate for their child? Sure. The, um, now, the IEP process is pretty specific. And when we talk about children under the IDEA, which is the law that proposed, that, um, mandates the IEPs, we're talking about generally 13 specific disabilities that a child could have to um, rate them having an IEP. Um, and Do you think, let me, I don't mean to interrupt certainly. you, do you think that's, that some parents may get shunned away not knowing that there's that many potential um, categories that their child could fall in? Or is there kind of maybe like a top five that everybody thinks, oh, this is one I would get an IEP? <laughs> And, and maybe so, you know, they're probably one of the top five, at least that I see with uh, parents. Um, probably the number one that uh, children have an IEP for are speech and language impairment. Young children, if they have disabilities or not, frequently have different speech or language impairments. And those children, if they're getting speech services in school, will typically have an IEP outlining okay. the services they get. Um, and as they receive the speech services, they a lot of times can grow out of it and learn out of it and uh, then not be eligible for IEP later okay. in life. Uh, unlike children with Down syndrome, they also qualify for uh, IEPs either through uh, intellectual disability or other health impairment or speech and language uh, impairment. These are all categories uh, certainly you can have. Some of the other uh, major categories are uh, autism uh, spectrum disorder, uh, emotional disturbance, deafness, hearing impairment, and uh, traumatic brain injury. And there's also kind of a catch-all called uh, multiple disabilities mm -hmm. is when it doesn't meet any other 12 factors, but the children, uh, the child is uh, impaired in their learning wow. ability. So if your child falls into any of those categories and you say, you know what, something's just not right, I need to find a way for my um, child to get extra help or, uh, or, or just services now in the school system, where, what are they doing? Where do they, where do they go? And, and, and a parent can, can make that request to the school and they can make it through an organization called uh, Child Find. Here in Florida, the, uh, the, uh, the school district has the requirement that they identify children that may have a uh, barrier to learning or a specific learning uh, disability. Um, and so they, they 
work with the parents to identify the children, provide the testing and assessments, and all that is uh, free to the parents. And if they, they determine through testing that the uh, child uh, does have, uh, meets one of the categories of disabilities under the IDEA, then they will uh, bring it up to the parent, show them the testing, and uh, give the parent the option to have a IEP. Okay, so now when you say that, that brings me to probably one of the big misconceptions is the stigma of an IEP on a child. You know, the parents may say, oh, well, if I do that test, it's going to follow my child all throughout, or, or I don't want my child to be labeled, or the teacher's just picking on my kid, and they just want to give them a test to say that they have issues. How do you combat that? What do you say to that to help? Well, first... Um, it is up to the parent. The parent has to consent to any testing. The school doesn't have the right to do any um, of the testing we're talking about for disability testing um, without the parent's consent. Okay. So they always have to come to the parent and have the parent sign consent for any testing that's going to be done mm -hmm. before they even implement it, be it uh, psychological testing, um, occupational therapy testing, or any IQ testing. Uh, IQ testing is often a big one. Um, so the parent has to consent to that beforehand. If the parent doesn't consent, the testing um, is not going to be given by the school. Okay. Of course, the parent could also always go and have private testing done if they wanted the results outside of the school system. Mm -hmm. And uh, then, you know, they can make a decision based on the test results that they can see privately or through the school. Okay. So now that parent says, I agree, I'm going to go ahead and do this testing. I noticed some things at home as well. I'm kind of concerned. Now the tests have been completed. What's the next steps? And then the next step after testing is to really sit down with the IEP team and see what the child needs to receive a free and appropriate public education. That's referred to as FAPE. That's another key term that comes under the uh, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, that the school has to provide a free and appropriate public education for that child. So if my kid was in a private school or a charter school, would they, they wouldn't necessarily be subject to having to do or be identified, correct? That, that's a good question. Um, and a, a little bit of... Uh, there's a couple of parts to your question. Uh, a pure private school, like a religious private school, the uh, answer would be no, basically no, they would not. Uh, charter schools in Florida, I think almost all charter schools in Florida follow the uh, county requirements, the same as being in a public school. So a charter school would be the same as if they were in a public school unless it was a private charter school setting. But off the top of my head, I'm not familiar with any private charter schools in Florida. So right. they should follow the same rules as a county school. So yes, the same uh, IEP team would meet and uh, make the decisions what, how to provide FAPE to that child. Okay, so the team. Now, I'm the parent. I'm putting myself in the shoes that I'm the parent. I'm going to meet with the team. Now, is there certain um, stipulations that the school has to put on me as far as when to meet, how to meet, what we have to talk about? Or is it something where I come to them or we're setting up mutual times? Or how does that part work? No, there are. After a child's identified as someone who um, uh, uh, has a special needs and they're going to have an IEP meeting to meet. There's a, there are timelines uh, outlined in the IDEA on when the child uh, has to meet, how long they have for the testing, and uh, so forth. So essentially, the, the school will schedule with the parent, uh, and really at the parent's convenience, though. The school is not necessarily in charge that we're only going to meet this one date at this one time. They need to be somewhat flexible, uh, and so does the parent in getting the meeting together because the law also mandates who has to be at the meeting. And so the school has to provide um, a, a certain amount of people that are outlined in particular areas, depending on the needs of the child. If the child needs speech, uh, certainly a speech therapist should be there. Uh, occupational therapy and OT should be there. Uh, the parent certainly is a member of the IEP team as well as the uh, general education teacher and maybe a special education teacher as well. So all these people's schedule has to coordinate, but uh, it's important to know that the school cannot drive the IEP meeting and say, you either be here at this time or not be here. The school needs to have some flexibility to work with the uh, parent schedule. But I will also say the parent needs some flexibility to work within the school schedule. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a, it's, it's a, 
just everybody's got to work together right. to get the meeting <laughs> set. And, and sometimes that's a very challenging thing even yeah. to get the yeah. meeting uh, set up. So something that you said that kind of struck me, um, you talked about the team on the school side and, and who should be there, but the parent, who should be on their side? Who should, I mean, them going in kind of blind and not knowing what to expect or what um, should come out of this meeting, who would you recommend, you know, a lawyer like yourself to be there with them? Would you recommend, you know, their their friend who knows about the IEP system? Or who would you expect for them to, to bring with them to the table? Well, and, and they can bring um, really anybody they want that has a, insight uh, into the child and may be able to uh, provide uh, input in the uh, IEP meeting. It's important to know the, the law allows the parents to bring uh, other people in the process, be it a uh, non-attorney advocate, somebody who's trained in education and can uh, advocate on behalf of the child and parent, a family friend just to provide emotional support, mm -hmm. uh, private speech therapist, private occupational therapist, private physical therapist, any of those people can come with the parent, um, so or the parent could take nobody and go by themselves. I mean, all those are an option, and it really, what I find is it depends on the, first, the level of relationship between a parent and the school, and really the age of the child. Because early on, um, children on IEP can start in the public school system at uh, three years old. So they provide um, pre-K services for three- and four-year-old children. And so those relationships are normally when the parents are just getting a foot in the door and meeting everybody and um, maybe having an IEP meeting. And, and the child doesn't really have a baseline at that point. You know, right, right. three- and four-year-olds, you know, they're, they're all kind of the same. You know? <laughs> um, but as the child progresses and you start getting more challenging educational goals and parents want more challenging educational goals for the child, sometimes there can be a disagreement in what the school should provide and what the parents uh, want the school to provide. Uh, one caveat and something I bring up to every parent when I can is we got to remember what the school is required to provide. They're required to provide a free and appropriate public education. The school is not there to provide the best education. Ah. And so sometimes that's a big disconnect because parents will come in and say, well, this, I think this is best for my child. The school's not there. The law doesn't require them to provide what's best. They're there to provide what's appropriate. So, you know, it's incumbent on parents if they're advocating for their child to show that's the appropriate um, um, thing that the child needs for their education and not necessarily come in there saying it's the best. And, and while the best may be the appropriate thing, right. it's a little <laughs> bit a matter of terminology. So, it, it, but it's very important terminology because as soon as the parent says best, the school knows they don't have to provide it because they're not there to provide the best. You know, people a lot of times talk about, you know, they're there to provide the Cadillac or the Volkswagen. You know, all they got to do is get you from A to B. So right, right. Provide the Cadillac. If it's the so bus, then the bus is right. have to they work. provide that. Okay. Um, whatever's appropriate. But it certainly cannot be unappropriate. That's, right. That's, that's the... How would you recommend for a parent to push for, um, I guess, sticking on that appropriate, um, push for the appropriate uh, thing that's for their child? I mean, it, the parents at home working with the, ch the children or the child, and they, they know maybe this particular program that they've been doing outside of school has been working, they're building momentum. Is that something that they could bring into the IEP and say, hey, you know, can we continue this? Or is that something where the school would say, no, we have a different option, we're going to go a different, you know, how would that part work? It is. And, and as you said, you know, there's a, a, a you know, a, a unlimited ways that children learn somewhere one way or another. Um, the most important thing that I would say for parents when they come to an IEP meeting is they can't come with their opinion. They need to come with some documentation. So um, what we see a lot is if a child needs occupational therapy or speech therapy, for instance, that's a specific service. And so the school's going to give so many minutes per week or per month or have some formula. But a parent needs to have some, if they want occupational therapy and just, for instance, they want 60 minutes a month, they have to have some documentation that would support the child needs that 
therapy for 60 minutes a month other than, you know, mom or dad just saying, you know, oh, I want 60 minutes. That's right. right. And that's what I find happens a lot. You know, the the parents, while they may be right, the child does need occupational therapy. They just don't have their ducks in a row to show that um, the child needs that occupational therapy. So they need outside occupational therapy eval, a letter from occupational therapist and saying this is why they need 60 minutes a month for educational purposes to, you know, help them use scissors, help them grasp, have a functional grasp of a pencil, Mm -hmm. you know, to show that the child is below level and they need this to um, help them have appropriate level of education that's why keywords appropriate there that piggybacks or i should say that leads me right into my next question how important is documentation whether at the elementary level you're at the middle school or the high school level how important is that documentation to to fight on your behalf you know it's i mean the the documentation is very important but the school is going to have documentation also uh one thing i talk about to parents, a lot of times they don't believe, understand the child has something through the school called a cumulative folder. Uh, they abbreviate it called a C file. The parent has a right to access that child's folder, and that's going to have all the school's testing and data, and a lot of times the records they keep on the child. Mm-hmm. Before the IEP meeting, the parent should be fully aware of what's in the cumulative folder, uh, perhaps have a copy of it. Or they can just go and inspect it at the school. It's a parent's right to see what's inside the folder and make any corrections to uh, information if it needs to be corrected in that folder. And it's important for parents to come. The parent is the best advocate for the child because obviously they know the child best. Wisdom twenty four seven. Been there yeah. since birth. I right. mean, teachers change from year to year, and you know sometimes more frequently than that. But it's always going to be your child. So you're going to be the best advocate, but you also need to have the most information. So going through and taking the time to look at that cumulative folder before the IEP to have an understanding of where the school's coming from and what that shows, um, having private evaluations, if they're available, um, to, to advocate on behalf of that, the things you need that maybe the school doesn't agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's... You know, it's really important for everybody to work together. But from time to time, there is a disagreement between the school and the parents. Um, and just because you have a one IEP meeting, uh, it doesn't stop there. The parents can request a subsequent IEP. For instance, if a parent comes at the beginning of the year or the end of the year, there's always an annual IEP meeting required by the law. Now, is it pushed by the school to only do one? Or is it on the parent to say, we want to do more? Or Well, the law requires a school to do one, only one every okay. year. Right. So, But the law authorizes an IEP meeting if it's requested by the parents or the school. So you can have more than one. Okay. So if you go to the IEP meeting without an advocate, for instance, and have a conflict with the school where there's a disagreement, you know, I say that's the time to contact an advocate and you know, have them look at the issue and they can advise you if you need more documentation or if the documentation you have should be uh, sufficient to show that what you need is appropriate and, and get that uh, appropriate um, uh, need for the child. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what it always comes back to. But you don't have to have just one. You can have multiple. Uh, one thing I, I, I did want to mention kind of while we're on that subject of having IEP meetings and sometimes there's some disagreement with the school and a parent the, the parent also is difficult because it's your child. You know, here today, I even have difficulty talking about my own child. But you, you got to separate the advocacy for your child from your emotions for your child. And make sure you're listening to the school when they speak and, and why they're coming up with what they want and why they feel that's appropriate for the child. And, and it's a very, very difficult thing when it's your child to have that um, distinction between the emotion you feel for them to have the what's best and, and what you want and what you really feel is appropriate for them. But to take a more analytical look at what does the evidence show, what does the testing show that's there. Um, and sometimes, uh, you know, parents need advocates just in and of that itself because it's so difficult sometimes to see when it's your child, right. the other point of view. Outside perspective. And, and the advocate can help bring that um, uh, uh, non-emotional kind of more analytical view to it and you know, kind of talk to you about that stuff as well. A IEP is considered a legal document, correct? It is. 
So when you have that legal document and you, you sit down for that first initial IEP uh, meeting with the team, with your, your team, their team, the, the whole group together, whatever that's written in there, is that something that's set in stone for the end goal? Can you come back and change it without having to call an entire meeting again? Is it stuff that you can you know, um, suggest to the school as the year goes on? How does that the part of uh, updating what the initial uh, process was, your initial come together was, how can you make sure your child is getting what they need, but also adding layers to it so it's not just kind of cut and dry from that first meeting? Yeah, and that's true. And, and, and that's probably why, I don't know the background behind it, but that's probably why they allow, the law allows meetings to come together. So uh, frequently uh, IEP meetings are held at the end of the year. So if a second grader is going at the end of second grade, going into third grade, frequently you'll have the IEP meeting at the end of their second grade year, you know, even before the summertime, even before they start third grade. Mm -hmm. Of course, anything can happen during the summer. You know, they can improve a skill, uh, lose a skill and that type of stuff. So while the IEP is, you know, it comes under the IDA, so it is a, you know, a, a legal document, a very important document. It's not a static document. It can be changed. Um, a, a parent can, you know, request an IEP meeting um, if they got another eval from somebody and thinks it's important to bring up to the team. And then the IEP team can get together and, you know, look at different ways to implement things or if there's a, a behavior modification uh, a program or something that's working during the summer and the school can implement that to help the child. You know, they can come together in the beginning of the meeting and something we didn't call, talk about too much, but there's something also uh, goes hand in hand with the uh, IEP called a, uh, a BIP or a behavior improvement plan for behavior specifically. So, you know, that can be changed. And so anything can be changed as you're going through the system mm -hmm. uh, it, based on what's appropriate for the child. You, know, you got to look at what the child needs and make sure it's appropriate and you, you're doing the, the right thing. How old would you say, um, or in your experience, of a child getting an IEP? I know a lot of times it starts elementary, you know, they'll notice things. But then middle school, you know, or middle, yeah, the middle school age is like a crucial age where, you know, you either have a lot of the behavioral issues will come into play or um, just where a child should be from elementary. They haven't fully got there by middle school. So now you have um, not so much a learning disability, but um, maybe things that were missed. So how old would you say is it should you as a parent still pursue trying to get an IEP? Well, I would say any time that um, a situation presents itself, and normally that'll be, you know, what I see a lot, it's through a, a diagnosis from a, uh, a family physician uh, or somebody that, you know, knows the child and has a uh, um, insight or mentions something to the parents. Now, most of them that I personally see are diagnosed early on uh, okay. by the second grade, certainly. Um, you know, speech and language is usually pretty early. And like I said, Down syndrome specifically is identified at birth. So that's pretty straightforward. Um, the children of autism, you know, you kind of see that coming in at two or three years old. Uh, but, you know, it, it doesn't mean that um, later in life um, things can't change with a child. Um, Specific? Um, I... I I know high functioning autism. A lot of times it seems like parents, they they'll miss it or they'll hear about it later on. And that's what I'm hearing more and more out, out in the streets. <laughs> so, um, you know, kind of it, as a parent, should I feel comfortable still trying to go get an IEP or should I just be talking to my physician to see, you know, what can be done or, you know, this child being now diagnosed with ADHD and, you know, before they were just a hyper kid, but now they're focused. And so, well, and, and that's right in both. I mean, I, those things go hand in hand, you know, the, uh, the physician is a, a key component not really of the IEP team by the law, but I mean a key component of the healthcare and identifying any issues. Um, and once the physician and, and the family physician, a lot of times is the one that initially identifies an issue and then it can be brought up to the school. I mean, the parent can share that information with the school and then they, you know, kind of set up the additional uh, testing and evaluation from an educational, not only from a medical perspective, mm -hmm. but from an educational perspective. And then they can implement the, uh, whatever is necessary through an IEP. 
and I and I, and I should also mention there's a, a separate act called the uh, 504 because parents will uh, hear about that. And Section 504 is also a law. It comes under the uh, Rehabilitation Act of uh, 1973, and that uh, provides for children with disabilities similar to an IEP, but it's a different section of the law completely, wow. and so it's implemented in a different way. Now, it can give the same thing. It can provide speech and occupational therapy and different services, and so if a child doesn't meet those 13 criteria that we were talking about earlier, that doesn't mean they still might not need uh, additional services. But those services will be provided under a 504 plan instead of an IEP. And it's just two different provisions in the law. So I was looking at the 504 information, and um, it seemed like um, college level. You know, you can't take an IEP with you once you graduate out of the public education system. But um, once you go into college, you know, some parents may feel like, well, are you still going to get the services that you got once you, you know, from before? And um, the 504 seems like, like you're saying, it, it covers a certain aspect of helping you, but it's not the same type of help that you got under the IEP. That's actually a great way of saying it. It, it, it does cover it and provides assistance, but it's different from the IEP because it's, it's really apples and oranges, two different provisions in the law. I can't really think off the top of my head anything uh, analogy for that, but it's you know it's two completely different provisions. But the 504 does still continue to uh, protect you, as well as the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act in general protects uh, you know uh, uh, and people and adults with disabilities uh, mm-hmm. as well throughout mm-hmm. their life. So I wanted to ask about um, with the. Education of students who have um, uh, IEP, going back to IEPs, once you get to 12th grade, some children, um, they're not going to be able to go off into college or uh, maybe that's not the plan that the parents and the child has. So in my experience, when I I used to work at one of the high schools, um, they had a special needs department. I used to work back there all the time. And I would notice that the kids would come in who were there were already graduates, but they would get those extra years to continue on with their skills. Is that something that the IEP covers? Is that something you need to put into your plan as a parent in the 12th grade? Or how are you still eligible for that type of um, extra assistance, those extra, I think, up to 21, or I believe, and you can probably speak to it more than me, but um, info on that. And and that's right. The IDEA covers kids from... um, really birth up through high school graduation or age 21. 21. So essentially they're, they're provided uh, services in the school from age three through 21. And, th- and that's why you see them, you know, a lot of times they say, oh, they get extra time in high school because that's what it ends up being that um, those services can, can, can be a, a multitude of different things at that level because then it can be a vocational rehabilitation and that's, job type of services. Right. And a lot of times that's provided, you know, in conjunction with the high school, but it can also be out in, um, you know, on the job training type stuff mm-hmm. and, and done through a, a number of uh, vocational programs. That's what I did notice. I would see, um, we would do uh, trips out to local organizations or businesses and the kids would do things from um, helping with sorting to um, stacking, to, you know, just things where they're getting those different skills, but um, it's still in conjunction with the school. We would leave from the school, go out to these locations, they would work, and then we would take the bus right back to the school. So I just found that interesting. I didn't know if that's something the parents had to um, put in their IEP plan or if it's kind of automatically, you know, expected. And it's a little bit of both, you know, at that, at that level, it's, you know, the appropriateness for every child, you know, is completely different on what the child's goals are. Um, and I should say when children are older, they, they become part of the IEP process. While children in elementary school, you know, rarely attend IEP meetings, uh, children in middle and high school are frequently or almost always attend their own IEP meetings to advocate on their own behalf. Um, because they obviously know what their goals are and they've got a voice in the IEP as well. Uh, something I have seen is it is important for parents to remember that children that have IEPs uh, aren't mandated to graduate from high school in four years. Um, they get that extra time. So I did not know that. And, and sometimes, you know, the, the classes can be overwhelming. So spreading the classes out over 
five years for a child instead of trying to get all the requirements done in four years, you know, can be a big help, uh, especially for students that are, you know, struggling and then feel overwhelmed and just can't keep caught up with the volume of work that it takes. So it's important to remember they do have till 21 so they can take a longer time or an extra year uh, to get those requirements done if they need it. That's good info. Great, great info. So why would I need a lawyer? I mean, if if I have my team, I have my cousin who, you know, her, she's been through the IEP process and I have my physician or, you know, the child's um, specific occupational therapist or whatever the case. And we go in against the team. Why would I want to bring a lawyer? Why would I call Mr. Sphinx to come and advocate on my behalf? Yeah, and, you know, sometimes it's unfortunate that just everybody cannot agree what is the appropriate uh, education for the child. And so, you know, it's a legal requirement that the school, I go back again and talk about that fate, free and appropriate public education. Um, free is normally not an issue. Public and education are not an issue. Appropriate is almost <laughs> always the issue because, you know, it, it, it can be, you know, good meaning and good intentions from both uh uh, the parents, the school, you know, and they just, you know, cannot agree. You know, everybody's a fundamental um, uh, player on the IEP team, but, you know, they just can't always agree. And, and when it comes to a, a longer head where, you know, you've had a couple IEP meetings, you've tried and you just feel the services are not appropriate for the child. Uh, for instance, if the child's not making progress from grade to grade, the goals in IEP are essentially the same from second grade to third grade to fourth grade to fifth grade, and the child's not making significant progress, you know, that, you know, may indicate there's a, you know, a, a problem with the IEP and, you know, something needs to change. And at that point, if the school's not willing to make a change to, you know, uh, get the progress of the student, sometimes you got to file an appeal. And, and appeals are uh, permissible under the IDEA, and you can uh, appeal uh, to an administrative law judge is one of the methods called a due process. And an, an impartial administrative law judge will hear, you know, from the parent's side typically and from the school side typically, and then make a decision on, you know, what would be appropriate. If I was a parent who was going to... Um take that route. I just felt I've, I've tried to get along with the school. I've tried to, to do what they want to do. Um, and I, I just don't feel like we're getting anywhere. Um, is the legal process going to be drawn out? Is it going to be something where it, it ends up hurting my child because we're waiting for so long for results? Or is it something that's fairly quick when we come to talking with children and dealing with education? It, 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 and that's... To some degree, it's difficult to say. Um, take the example I used where the child wasn't making significant educational progress from year to year. Um, the child's not making progress anyway, so dragging out the legal process certainly is not going to hurt anything because right. you got to make some change. Something's got to happen to you know make the change. Uh, it can take some time. There's some uh, legal requirements in the IDEA that the uh, process moves relatively quickly compared to other legal processes, but... Um, you know, it certainly, you know, is not uncommon to take six months or a year to get the uh, impartial hearing officer to make a decision on a, on a, uh, on a matter. But uh, once that's made, uh, it can be implemented. And the, and the hearing officer can also, um, if the parents prevail, they can make the uh, school provide compensatory um, services or catch-up services so the child can catch up for that time that was missed, be it a year oh, or two wow. years back, um, so they can have services during the summer or weekends or after-school tutoring. Those type of things can also be ordered by the hearing officer to help the child make up for that um, lost time that they got. Is that something you could throw in an IEP plan, like tutoring on the weekends or things like that? Or You know, in the big picture, almost anything is available in an IEP because it's based on the individual student and uh, what's appropriate for that student. So every, you know, in the big picture, every IEP is different because every individual is different. Right. Um, so it's based on the needs. But essentially, there's a couple things about IEPs. One, um, money is not an object. The uh, courts ruled down that number of times. Just because something is expensive doesn't mean um, 
that doesn't prevent it from being offered. If a child needs the services for appropriate education, the child is entitled to it under IDA, uh, regardless of you know what the cost of that item is. So, you know that that should never be a conversation during an IEP meeting. That well, yeah, the child really needs that, but it's too expensive to the school to provide. That's that's never going to uh, be acceptable. So the child, you know, is protected by the IDEA to get what they need to provide them the appropriate uh, public education. Appropriate. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That was pretty amazing. The whole, I I was going to ask, is the money tied into the school district where it would kind of prevent them from wanting to offer services to a child? Or is it a separate pot of money? Because I think the parents probably think about that. Like, they're not giving me this service, not because it's, um, in their head, they're probably tied to, you know, this is what I think is appropriate, not differentiating, but more, oh, the school just doesn't want to pay for it. And, and of course, that's always a uh, challenge for the uh, school district because they, uh, they, they do have a budget and uh, they got to stay tied to their budget. So, um, you, you know, uh, while certainly the school district cannot come out and say they cannot provide services based on cost, um, they, they may be able to find other reasons not to provide that service. that road. Wow. So I mean, it's kind of a slippery slope. Although money's not an object, still, they have to work within their budget. Right. Money's always an object. Right. Their budget's always so <laughs> big. I mean, they, it um, is, but it's not. Yeah, right. And, 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 that's, and that's true. I mean, there's several cases that have uh, determined that, you know, if the child needs it to be appropriate, that money is not an object and the school has to, you know, petition the state or petition, you know, other resources to, you know, uh, provide the child the uh, appropriate education. I can definitely see why then the the lawyer would come into play because that would probably be where you would have a parent in administration bump heads because I, this costs this, I can see you're kind of trying to deter from it, but when it comes down to it, we're not getting the child what they need appropriately. So I'm going to talk to Mr. Spinks. Yeah. And that's exactly it. You know, especially if the child's not making that progress, you know, right. that's where I really see it. You know, if, if it's something that, you know, can help the child make progress and they're not making any progress, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to say you, should, you shouldn't make those changes, right. You right. know, regardless of what they cost to uh, implement it. Uh, I, I will say it's a little bit uh, a, a deeper issue, but the method of instruction is always up to the uh, school district. Um, so if we talk about something, um, just to, uh, off the top of my head, uh, a lot of your listeners probably heard about handwriting without tears as being a uh, handwriting program. Mm-hmm. And of course, there are many different handwriting programs, many different reading programs. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the parent for the child generally cannot specify, I want this specific program taught uh, okay. to my child. Child, The school, you know, um, with, without, you know, tying it into some testing or anything, but generally the schools get to teach the information in a manner in which they, you know, want to pick that, you know. Um, so, and also uh, what type of uh, testing for psychological testing mm-hmm. the parent can't dictate. Uh, the school psychologist is going to pick those tests and, you know, do the testing that they select. But that's why the parent always has the option to go on the outside, do something on their own, and then bring those results back to their team. That's absolutely true. Absolutely true. If, if they feel the testing was, you know, um, inappropriate for some reason and different testing might reveal different results, you know, there's an uh, unlimited number, it seems, of these uh, psychological tests that can be done um, to, to bring it to the team. And the team has to consider any outside information uh, brought to it. So the law requires that. And now, it doesn't mean the team's going to accept the result of that, but they must at least consider it right. uh, in light of all the circumstances. So then um, would that also be the same in the case of, let's say, at home over the summer, I've been working with my child and we've done writing without tears and it's worked. But I noticed all last year the teacher used this program and it didn't. So, again, I could bring that writing with tears is working for my child. Here's the proof. And then that would maybe kind of sway them to say, well, we'll use that. And it could. And, and you know, it's all, you know, situational dependent. Um, and, you know, a lot of it comes down to does the school have that program? Because, of course, that program costs for the school to 
implement and have mm-hmm. in their inventory. If it's a program the school has in their inventory, it's a lot easier to get it agreed Absolutely. upon that yeah. that's how they're going to do things than if it's something they don't have, something unique that they have to go out and uh, purchase on the private market. Again, you know, then it becomes expensive. And Back to the budget. The teacher, and, and of course, the teacher, if they're not trained in implementing that method, right? Well, how how are they going to implement it if they're not even trained? You know, it, it, you, you see how it kind of yeah. becomes a bigger issue, um, and, and those those do become uh, contested issues many times. So, I guess my big takeaway is, you know, as a parent, document, document, document. See what works for your child. Come to the table with um, people who are going to speak on your behalf um, with knowledge. Don't just bring anybody. Bring some people who have some knowledge or, or, or some type of um, support within what it is that you're, you're going through or trying to accomplish. Um, and then also, everything's on the table. You know, it's just, it's a, about the key word today, appropriate. <laughs> appropriate um, education. Um, but you know, removing yourself and, and really looking at what is it that your child needs? Um, how is the school going to be able to implement that um, within the constraints that they have as well? Because we have to you know, also be realistic of that as well. But um, don't stop fighting just because, you know, the first door shut. Make sure you keep on um, trying to get the best outcome for your child. Does that kind of sum up? The appropriate outcome. The appropriate. For your child. I'm sorry to use a key word. <laughs> the appropriate outcome. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that is really it, though. You know, the parents, you know, it's a, it's a challenge to come to the table with an open mind um, about your child. And then really focus on what can be appropriate, and, and you know everybody trying to be a team player at the meetings, and, and it doesn't always work out. I mean, obviously, you know, I started this uh, child first advocates to help parents that are having the uh, conflict. If it worked out and everybody was happy all the time, you know, it, it wouldn't really be an issue. But unfortunately, there there is disagreement. But I do uh, tell every parent to go to the meeting with an open mind, you know, and, and try to find different solutions. You know, try to find a solution that'll work for everybody because, you know, due process and litigation is kind of, you know, what I, I think it was kind of a last step, you know, yeah. that's, you don't want to go there, but, you know, as a parent, be the advocate for your child. If you need to go there, you need to go there. Don't just uh, back down and, you know, essentially give up on something that could potentially uh, help aid in the education of your child. So if my listeners want to uh, get in contact with you. Childfirstadvocates.com is where they can find you on the web. And um, your information, of course, will be posted as well. But uh, phone number 813-651-1233 is another way to get a hold of you. Um, and is there anything that you would want us to know? Something we're not thinking about as a, as a parent that we should make sure that's on the forefront of our mind when we're dealing with IEPs? You know, the biggest thing, and I touched on it earlier, is looking at that cumulative folder, knowing what's in your child's folder and knowing what's, you know, out there. What's what's in the folder? What does it say? You know, having that uh, a copy of the folder or having gone through it beforehand, you know, so very important. So you're not there. And you get blindsided by the school saying, well, these are the test results. And, you know, as a parent, you've never looked at it and, and saw what their present levels are. And present levels are a whole, you know, section of the IEP. Um, but, but having that information uh, in hand as well. Um, and, and, and don't hesitate to uh, contact an advocate, be it uh, us at uh, childfirstadvocates.com or, you know, there's a number of other uh, educational advocates out there. And some of the services that they would expect to find, I mean, something as simple as just a review you guys take care of as well. Yeah, we do. We do, we do an IEP review, which I, I think is uh, very helpful because early on, you don't know what you don't know. Right. So when you're going through setting goals and getting, you know, uh, time for speech, OT and these related activities, you know, how do you know, you know, 45 minutes a month of speech is appropriate? You know, should it be 90? Should it be 45? You know, right. these are hard things of knowing uh, what the goal should be. You know, should the child know how to say the ABCs or should the child be reading? You know, what, what, which one should it be? Right. Um, there's a number of resources out there. And so we offer that service.
this uh, IEP review. One, to make sure the IEP can meet matches the federal guidelines and it contains all the necessary components that are required under IDEA. And two, to review the goals and the uh, objectives for reaching those goals for the student to uh, make sure they're appropriately phrased and, and, you know, maybe have the parent to make some advice on how to tighten up the goals, you know, and, and kind of strive for uh, more tightly worded uh, goals. Uh, we also have a program of review medical records and documentation like that regarding related services, be it, you know, occupational therapy, speech therapy, behavior services, whatever, you know, other related services are, you know, called for to assist the child. Wow, you do it all. And even you'll come in and sit in on a meeting as well. We do. We attend uh, either myself uh, or um, advocates with uh, our group uh, will come and attend the IEP with the parent to, you know, help. And normally that's after we've reviewed the IEP for the parent. We, you know, help that structure and implement and kind of work with that team, you know, from a legal perspective to, you know, make sure the goals are clearly defined and the objectives will actually match up to meet the goals at the end of the school year. So don't be afraid to call a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Don't be afraid. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, I thank you again so much. This was so insightful. Um, I know my listeners definitely will get a lot out of this. Uh, There's no way you can not leave here with 10 times more than you knew before we started. So I thank you again, Mr. Spanks. Um, Check them out. Check out the organization at childfirstadvocates.com. We're here in the Florida area, but even if you're listening from somewhere else, by all means, they can still take that phone call and help you out. And I mean, even if it's just leading you in a a direction of who might be in your local area, but still the help is out there. So take advantage of it. So yes, take advantage of these resources. Do you need a hose? Do I need to put you out? Because I know you're on fire, baby. Exactly. I told you it was going to be a great episode. So again, you have been listening to Real Talk Education Lanes. I'm so glad you joined me today. And please check out our Facebook page. Look for our YouTube channel, which is going to be coming out with not only audio for the podcast, but video as well. So I'm excited for that. And I'm going to be launching something soon that's going to be pretty cool, focused towards our teens, where we have a chance to work together, be able to help them navigate what they're going through as far as with, you know, school and just life in general. So I will tell you more about that in the future, but I know you've enjoyed today's episode. Please share, tell your friends and take this information and utilize it to the best of your ability. Thanks for listening to Real Talk Education Lanes. Talk to you next time.